the movie. Roderick is like, I like to fly under the radar, set the bar as low as possible. So all you do is exceed expectations. That is what Ryan Tannehill did today. Welcome into the Hot Read Podcast for Monday, September the 11th. I'm your host, Easton Freeze, director of published content here at BroadwaySportsMedia.com. We're also brought to you by the 440 Podcast Network. You can follow me on social media at Easton Freeze. I'm joined, as always, by producer JT, who you can follow at JT underscore Runky on social media. JT, how are you? First NFL Sunday of the year in the books. Week one, as weird as ever. How are you doing? How was your day? You know NFL football is back when Puka Nakua is tied with Tyreek Hill for the most receptions in week one with fifth or most targets, targets sure. in week one with 15, 15 targets for big Puka. We're so we're so back, baby. We're so back. No, my, I, I my hope- we're back moment today was after the first quarter of every game, every fan coming to these drastic conclusions, which is gonna be a, a large key to today's topic, but like already deeming teams and players good and bad after 15 minutes of the first game of the whole season. Like we're back. I love it. I do. I do. I do hope for the world uh, that Stoney Keeley poured himself a nice big glass of bourbon tonight to celebrate his Puka Nakua victory that he is now basically. Are are you saying you hope he did that or you know, he did that? no, I hope he does. No, I I hope he's, I hope he's celebrating the victory as well. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. Welcome into the show, everybody. (laughs) Um, We're talking Titans reacting to the Titans loss in week one in New Orleans to the Saints a lot to get into but before we do we have to recognize our fantastic sponsor here at the hot read podcast boom buzz pizza and tap house guys they have some of the best most award-winning craft and artisan pizzas in the world according to the Vegas International Expo of Pizza and the International Pizza Championships they have won best pizza in the world twice at the international pizza championships, which I mean, that sounds pretty official to me and based on tasting the food there, I can tell you it checks out like the math. It I run the numbers. It works. It's delicious. Yeah, it's fantastic. And uh, they are in middle Tennessee in spring Hill in East Nashville in Murfreesboro, also uh, Kentucky and Indiana, some locations up there. So check out boom boss pizza. Um, we love those guys, and we love doing our shows with them every Thursday live in Spring Hill. But today we are live on a Sunday night. We have just watched the uh, I don't I don't know if you can really call it a game between the Dallas Cowboys and the New York Giants. There was there was football activities going on in MetLife Stadium this evening, um, and Daniel Jones, aside from getting killed all night long, was also aggressively bad all night long, and the. the the Cowboys were aggressively amazing all night long. And it's just one of those games where every, every single year, JT, the NFL thrusts NFC East divisional matchups into our face in prime time. And they know they're going to be duds because somehow, for some reason, the Cowboys insist on absolutely murdering NFC East teams in explicit, not safe for work, not safe for television fashion on national primetime games. And then they also then go to the playoffs and lose in the most hilarious and and like emasculating and disappointing way possible. And so this this cycle of like Cowboys amazing because they kill NFC East teams on live television all year long and the games suck and when nobody watches them past halftime, but they must be good. 
Then they get killed in the playoffs. And then we get to the offseason and the NFL is like, you know what we want? More of that. Couldn't explain it to you. But that's what our Sunday night was. And so we're recording here. And we're getting to all of our podcast responsibilities, getting to a little bit early. Because frankly, who needs to tune into that, that madness that's going on in MetLife? Um, we've got winners and losers today, as we will every single Monday. Um, or, well, every single day on the show following the Titans game. I forget. Sometimes they're not on Sundays, but most Mondays and the occasional Friday show. Um, I guess the London game will also be on a Monday, Sunday evening. But so before we get into some winners and losers from today's losing effort by the Titans, just wanted to kind of recap, um, you know, a very ugly way to start the season for the Titans, JT. Not ugly in the sense that the score was ugly. Like, the, you know, they lost by one, certainly not an embarrassment by any stretch of the imagination. But the the nature of the loss was the ugly part, right? Five field goals, no touchdowns, three interceptions, each progressively worse than the last, big play miscues and untimely penalties. Like, that's what defined this game for the Titans. And then now you've got the varying levels of panic setting in across the NFL, so we're, we're here to remind you on today's show and through today's winners and losers that the annual reminder week one in the NFL is a liar. You really should not believe anything that you saw today until you see more. Now is not the time for concern or excuse me. Now is the time for concern. It's not the time for conclusions. That's going to be really the theme of today's episode. Now is the time for concern. Concern is fair. Concern is warranted. Um, I guess you could say concern and optimism, both sides of the, the spectrum, but conclusions are not really fair through week one. For reference, last year, we saw the 49ers lose to the Bears, the Jaguars lost to the Commanders, and the Cowboys lost to the Bucks all in week one. Um, it's historically notorious week one in the NFL for weird and wacky outcomes, and Lord knows we saw plenty of that today. The Bengals died. The Chiefs on Thursday night died. Um, the, the Steelers got murdered by the 49ers, a team that a lot of people thought would be good. Am I missing any other in, insane outcomes today? Like that kind of, is, I mean, the only one, the only one that truly felt right was an absolute shootout between the chargers and dolphins, but every other game was like, proper. yeah, like, I mean, how about it, the Bucks beating the Vikings? Hello, Buccaneers. Yeah, Lamar looking really bad against the Houston Texans team. Like, yes, like a lot of a lot of just weird games, except an absolute shootout. But yeah, weird stuff happens, except for that game that just felt right between those two teams. And, and yeah, like it was just it was a fast track to, out there in L.A. You, you knew it was going to be one of those games and, and kind of like, I don't know if you I went from watching the Titans game to watching that game pretty much. And it, it felt like watching two different sports like it didn't you know it's not really even similar in any way shape or form no no it may be more like college football than anything watching that game just no defense we're just going to score and be amazing and Tyree kill is going to catch a thousand balls for ten thousand yards but yeah week one historically notorious for weird and wacky outcomes so if you have a particularly strong or definitive take after week one you're almost certainly doing it wrong so that that's something that we're going to keep in mind today so let's dive into some of those concerns and some optimism from today's game for the Titans. With that knowledge in mind, here are your winners and losers from week one. Yeah, let's start off with the first loser today. And it's got to be the guy who had the roughest day out there um, in week one, Ryan Tannehill. JT, let's enter the spin zone here. Ryan Tannehill realized, and this is 40 chess on his part, he realized that having your nightmare game in the last game of the season 
is far worse than having your nightmare game in the first game of the season. So he decided to flip them. Just get it out of the way. He's playing chess, not checkers, boys and girls. Like this is, it's all uphill from here. Set. What was uh, in Dire of Olympic Kid, the movie, Roderick is like, I like to fly under the radar. Set the bar as low as possible. So all you do is exceed expectations. That is what Ryan Tannehill did today. He set the bar impossibly low. So I guess the good news there is, and this maybe this is a knock on wood moment because maybe I suppose it could get worse. Maybe you throw four interceptions. Um, I really don't see it getting worse than this all year long for him. So that's a, a good thing, I suppose. But in seriousness, this appeared to be <laughs> to the eye, the naked eye, the worst Ryan Tannehill performance of his career, certainly the worst of his Titans career. And the numbers kind of back that up. Let's start with a clip from head coach Mike Rabel talking about Ryan Tannehill's performance today and making sure to point out that it's not all on his quarterback. Play and you look at the line play and the defensive play, everybody. It's just, you know, it's never going to be about one guy. Hold him at halftime. We got to block better. We got to get into routes better. We got to get open quicker. And we have to throw the ball. Better and the runners have to run better. So that's what it's always going to be. Uh, everybody's tied in. That's where we're at. Week one, found some adversity. It's a great challenge on the road. When we handled the environment, we were able to hit some plays. Unfortunately, got behind the sticks. Too many long yarded situations, too many third and longs, which led to too many third and longs, which led to not enough conversion. It's never not funny how jovial and mood how like maybe jovial is strong but like just generally a chill and good mood mike Vrabel is in whenever they lose his press conferences like in the media pool it's well known amongst us that like if you're going into a press conference after a win get ready for kind of prickly mike Vrabel. and if you're going in after a loss odds are he'll like be in a pretty relaxed mood and so like if the chargers win in nissan stadium next week he will seem 10 times more depressed than he is in that video for what reason I could not tell you, but that's just the way that he is. This was Ryan Tannehill's first three interception game JT since a particular game of note a couple of seasons ago against one Cincinnati Bengals team in the divisional round of the playoffs. That game that everybody is aware of that this was his first three interception outing since then. Statistically, this game was actually a good deal worse for him than that. If you look at the numbers, if you go by passer rating, it was his worst game of his entire career. He had a 28.8 rating, uh, quarterback rating, that is, in, in the 16 to 15 loss at New Orleans and in the 41 to 7 loss at Buffalo last year in week two. That grade for reference had a 32.7. And that Bengals playoff game, he actually had a 66.7 grade overall, significantly better. So, Today's grade of 28.8, the worst of his entire long NFL career. Kind of impressive uh, a feat. Like I saw at one point in fantasy, he had negative 1.5 points or something. I think he finished the day on most platforms at like one, one and a half points, even a really solid showing from him. Uh, this next clip is Ryan Tannehill after the game talking about his comfort level saying that things just didn't go his way, but he did feel comfortable in the system and he didn't want to get into any of the details on the interceptions. Healthy, felt really good mentally, um, ready to roll. Um, just didn't come out and, and play well. Obviously, I'm not happy with the way he performed and there's a lot of room to grow there and, and excited to, to get back to work 
and be ready to go next week. A couple of those throws to, to Hopkins, they ended up getting intercepted. Was it a matter of like not being able to step into the throw, or, or what happened there? I'm not going to get into uh, to all the interceptions uh, and, and what caused them all, but at the end of the day, you got to clean them up and, and eliminate them. If you look at his EPA, which is expected points added, it was among the lowest EPA per dropback numbers from the early slate per True Media. Ryan Tannehill with a negative 0.47 EPA. Kenny Pickett, who also had a horrible day with a negative 0.49. And then Joe Burrow bringing up the rear, negative 0.65. Tough scene for those three fellas. The most obvious issue with his play was, I, I think, just the, the clear inability, JT, to, to dial in how much juice to put on his deeper passes. He, he went one for eight on throws of 15 or more air yards, zero touchdowns, three interceptions on those passes. All three of his interceptions were pretty dramatic under throws. Again, each kind of getting worse than the next. And and so you had the, the first interception was De DeAndre Hopkins picked off. And then to Chris Moore on that really deep shot right after halftime on that first drive, uh, it gets batted down by the, the deeper cornerback and picked off by the the uh, shallower DB, um, which there was some gentle interference on that that we'll talk about later. And then another Hopkins pass where Marshawn Lattimore picks him off again. Um, this next clip is, is another Ryan Tannehill statement from after the game talking about how he's looking forward to assessing the damage here, but then is ready to move on to the Chargers in week two. All around, you know, there's there's certain areas where, um, you know, throw. I had had a couple open guys and, and miss them, right? And that's uh, that's something obviously I want to get cleaned up. And then um, just being in tune with everything with ever that's going on and what we're trying to do offensively, being on the same page with receivers is crucial. And um, excited that, you know, it's just week one and we have a, a lot of time to uh, to get this thing cleaned up and ready to roll for week two. Uh, he seems to try to adjust after that, but then promptly overthrew. Chigakonkwo on that trick play where Chig managed to get wide open running up that uh, right-hand side of the side, uh, the right-hand sideline that is. And, and it was a really nice, well-drawn trick play. And I actually recall seeing that earlier in camp and wondering like, oh, I wonder if they're going to bring that out anytime soon. I didn't expect it in the, in the first week. They dialed it up. It worked perfectly, except the quarterback just way over through Chig. It was a certain seven points there. And then later in the game, I think on the last drive of the game, uh, Ryan Tannehill had Tajay Spears coming out of the backfield on the left-hand sideline through the ball too, too, too far to the sideline, um, to the boundary side of Tajay Spears, forces him to contort his body, ends up not bringing in the catch inbounds. If he throws that ball with better placement away from the boundary, leads Tajay up the sideline, that's almost certainly seven points as well. So just a really difficult to watch day for him in terms of kind of dialing in his distance. Like it kind of seemed that simple. JT didn't, did it not seem like a guy that just, I don't know, like a, a, a pitcher that just cannot stop throwing high or low to save his life. That's kind of how it felt to me. Yeah, definitely. It wasn't like there was any, <clears throat> I, I think any glaring issues. It's just, he put a little too much on a lot of kind of plays where it would have been a touchdown if he just would have kind of sat back and just giving it the normal throw that he usually does. But that's just kind of how it goes in these first games, kind of taking the rust off of it. Cause he didn't, he 
didn't throw a pass all preseason in, in real live action. So, I mean, getting out there probably are going to throw a little bit more on there than you'd like. So it's understandable, but also super frustrating still. Do you think that has anything to do with it? Like, I, I, I'm glad you brought it up and we're going to ask him this week. I'm going to try to ask more than just the cookie cutter. And I'm asking a lot of these guys the more than just the cookie cutter question of, you know, do you think not playing in the in the preseason, you know, impact? Because obviously they're going to be like, no, you know, no, no excuses. We have expectations of ourselves. We're professionals. We've been in this league for a long time, blah, blah, blah. But ultimately, what, three years in a row now? The Titans have, and you could argue four all the way back to when the Titans did win on Monday night against the Broncos in Denver. Even in that game, I think they won 17 to 16. But you have that game, and then you have the blowout to Arizona in 2021. And then last year, you have the um, last-minute loss to the Giants with the Fat Randy missed kick. Like, And now today, you, you have really four games in a row, four years in a row now, where the Titans have had the same tack from a preseason perspective of we're just not going to we're not we're not going to really get our guys out there to get warm our starters we'll get them a little bit of play here and there maybe a specific unit that needs it especially a specific younger group but other than that we're we're going to just start week 1 and they've looked like a team that hasn't really gotten warm yet they look like a team that's really rusty and has not worked out the kinks of gelling yet so it it i think it's not unfair to question yeah y'all say it doesn't really matter but does it I don't, I don't know. I really don't know the answer. And I think it's, I don't, I don't think we'll ever get a clear answer for reference. Like Kenny Pickett in that first team squad on five, um, on five drives that they played in the preseason had five touchdowns. And then in their first yeah. five drives, couldn't get a first down today. So like the giants looked awesome in the preseason. <laughs> and then yeah. today they looked like that. I, I think it truly is just like either way. It, it is just, a totally different mindset from the preseason of playing real football with guys who are also probably not playing in the preseason on the other end of the ball on the sure. defense, like Marshawn Lattimore and all these guys who are going to be coming out there to get you and, and are not holding back. Like, like they have for the past month and a half. So I, I think there is an aspect to it, of course, but how much of it, it's really hard to say. What I also wonder if if the complexity of what you're running has anything to do with it, because like you mentioned, teams such as the Giants, such as the the Steelers that did get some action in the preseason. But even then, all preseason plays on both sides of the ball are like cookie cutter, vanilla football 101 coverages. We're going to run a base cover two. we're going to run a, a basic blitz. We're going to, you know, like it's it's very simple. You know, we're going to run a 32 dash right up. The, like we're just it's stuff from peewee football. And then you go to what you're actually installing for your playbook, your your plays that you've been cooking up all summer long that are top secret that you're trying to use to excel. And maybe that backfires a little bit at first because of the complexity or maybe just because it's something you haven't had any opportunity to run live against anyone but your own team that, you know, gets accustomed to those plays, starts to learn those plays. I wonder if that has something to do with it. Certainly something that I'm going to ask some questions about this week. One more clip here from Daniel Brunskill, Titans right guard. He had some thoughts after the game on the false starts in the game, which were a problem for the offensive line, the crowd noise, and Ryan Tannehill. 
Um, I know it's really hard for those guys, um, especially the farther you out you get. Yeah. It just it's so hard to hear, and like guys are revved up for the game. They're trying to like it was early on, kind of where things were happening a little bit, and guys are trying to get going. Um, I know there's one where we're getting like late down in the play clock, and, and Ryan's clapping, and I got to do a better job because I'm looking back to just start yelling because we were on a different cadence when we go multiple times, and I just got to yell out to the guys and just hey, tell them hey, it's off, it's off, we got to go. You know, so it's it's just kind of communication with everybody. And then just kind of getting in, and that's one of the hardest environments you're going to be in. I mean, that's what I was there's ask, Kansas yeah. City, there's Seattle. Here is one of those places, but I mean, there there's not a lot of places that are like this. And um, for this for the first game, I mean, that was a huge test. And we knew the whole time that was going to be the biggest, I think, issue. Mm. Um, and going into it, and um, I think we can definitely do better. And it's all it's going to do is just help us get going forward. Because getting that one out of the way now, knowing what it's going to be like when we go forward and we get into a game where maybe we didn't think it was going to be. Allowed, we're prepared for it, and so um, I think we just need to go, go home, clean it up, and get ready for the next game. How was Ryan? I mean, this was a lot of adversity, you know, three interceptions under a lot of pressure. How was he throughout that whole the whole process? You know, Ryan's just slinging that rock. I, I freaking, I told him after I was like, keep slinging it. I think a lot of it, you know, some of those were on us. I mean, some of those were in his face when he's mm-hmm. trying to make that throw. That is not easy if you can't step into a throw and you're trying to beam it on the sideline, you know. Um, so, like, I think it's just kind of an all-around effort. Um, you know, they, they, in credit to the Saints, I mean, they're a hell of a team with a hell of a defensive coordinator and a hell of a good players, like 56, 94. I mean, they, and they got the young kid, 90, and he played a hell of a game. They, I mean, you got to give credit to those guys as well. Um, they did a great job dialing up some really tough games. Um, their linebackers do a really good job of like, creating space, making it really hard to pick up those games. And I, I think that they're one of the best teams at that. And, and you know, uh, going forward, you know, there's already a couple teams I can think of that have that same type mm. where they really practice those games. And, you know, we're going to have to figure out what do we need to do, especially with those teams that create that much space. Because, I mean, there's some times where you can be as perfect as possible and they'll still get you. Like, you know, so if you're just like a split second off. So um, you, you got to give credit to those guys. But at the same time. And shout out our guys, TD and PK for those clips. But JT, here's. The reason why our concern over conclusions motto must come into play here. Like, here's the parsing for week one. This was Ryan Tannehill's first game of the season in a new offense with a new offensive coordinator and a bunch of new offensive weapons. With any team installing a new offense or dealing with, you know, undergoing a massive personnel overhaul, which the Titans are doing both of. I think that there's a period of growing pains that should be expected. Like we've seen this before. We're going to see it again. It's, it's the way that this works. You don't suddenly do a brand new thing or, you know, operate with brand new people perfectly on day one. So the Titans are managing both of those things. It often doesn't matter how good your pieces are on a team. Time to gel is a, is a mandatory ingredient for success. So my ultimate analysis on Ryan Tannehill before we move on. He, he looked uncomfortable out there to me. It went beyond the pass rush that he was facing. Like I felt that he like just uncomfortable with, with the, the situation, what he was seeing out there. Maybe it was the receivers not getting open as well or as often as they should have, but I'm inclined to think he maybe just wasn't seeing the field as well as he'd like, um, you know, in addition to making a, a handful of pretty poor throws, he was missing reads badly, new plays with routes and combinations that he he's not familiar with yet. Like all of that has to be second nature to a quarterback. The, the scheme needs to be second nature, like a 
you know, it's like if you ever tried to learn a foreign language, it's you're learning it, you're thinking about it actively in your brain. And anybody that has become like fluent in another language can tell you there becomes a moment where suddenly it you're no longer it, thinking about it. It just it's the way that your body works. You start to you know, you start to think in Spanish. You 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 start to dream in Spanish. You'll hear interpreters tell you about this. Like that's how it needs to be for these players. And when you're in a system for a long time, it's just it's second nature. You know, you hear the play call, you see it in your head, you feel it in your body, you've done it a billion times. The Titans aren't in that place. Ryan Tannehill is not in that place. So is that to make an excuse for him? No, but is it a reason? Probably. Like, I think it's a reasonable thing to point out. And and so perhaps it just isn't the case for him yet that he feels that way with much of this scheme. But I'll say if it, to, to not be too soft on him, like if that is the case, which is reasonable and understandable, you better adjust pretty quickly. You better You better do that soon. Because the first six games of this season for the Titans, as we've established, easily the, the hardest six-game stretch for them in terms of the quality of opponent. Yeah, let's move on to a winner of this game. And it's the guy who scored all the points today, Nick All Polk, the points. Um, who went perfect today for scoring five field goals, five for five. He is one of our winners today. Yeah, he. I mean, he literally did all of the scoring, all 15 of the Titans' points came off of the boot of Nick Folk and he deserves the praise. Like what you saw today, that is why you give up the the draft pick for him. That is why you make that trade. The Titans have to, at the very least, feel good about their kicking situation after this week, because he was put through the whole gamut in a game that saw eight total field goals made. Folk nailed five of them from 50, 27, 31, 45, and 29. That, I mean, that sounds like a practice um, like a training camp report of where they put you through the gamut. Like that's what they do a lot in August where it's like, let's line up from this distance and then move back here and move back up here. Let's get all the scenarios. He got all of them. 50, 27, 31, 45, 29. He hit from every distance, every length, never really in doubt. All of those kicks were pretty good. There were a, an astonishing 293 yards of total kicks made in new Orleans. JT. I took the liberty of doing some math on that. Nick Folk had 182 of them which is a lot of yards worth of kicks. So the Titans offense couldn't pull their weight on the scoreboard, but Folk did more than his fair share. One tangential element of his game, however, that bears discussing, as we've talked about a little bit, Folk came into the, the Titans um, organization with a red flag on him that was, this guy can't really do kickoffs. Like we, we don't know if he can get the ball. Like physically, we're not sure he's got the leg anymore to get it into the end zone for touchbacks because a lot of his recent kickoff experience didn't get to the end zone. They were returned. And that kind of was the case today. JT five kickoffs today and all five of them, or excuse me, not all five of me, uh, the first three of them. And then uh, let's see, let me make sure I got this right. Okay. So, so the first three were returned. The, the final two, he did finally get into the end zone for touchbacks. So, Three of his five today were returned and did not get into the end zone. Ultimately, it didn't result in like any dramatic field position advantage for the Saints. It was all kind of that 20 to 30 yard line. I think one was returned to the 33 yard line was the best that they did. So I, while his reputation for being unable to always get the ball far enough downfield to create touchbacks, I think is earned and like validated. We did hear him talk about, oh, I worked in the offseason and I'm sure he did. I'm not trying to make fun of him, but you know, I, as much work as you can do, you are aging. Like you, you've reached a point now where I think you just don't have the leg to do that anymore. But as long as the Titans special teams and 
Craig Ackerman, who had a day besides the, just we're going to forget that blocked punt. Don't worry about that. But the rest of it, a good day for Craig Ackerman, I suppose, if he, he can claim the glories of Nick Folk and the coverage teams. Um, yeah, it was, it was good for him. And I don't think the kickoff thing will be an issue as long as the kickoff coverage team can do their job. So move on to another loser and one that we don't usually put in this category a lot of times, but Mm. Mike Vrabel today is one of the losers of this game and not for his whole performance today of his coaching, but definitely down the stretch of the fourth quarter. Not a loser for the first play where he throws the challenge flag out of the gate. Not a not cold with that trigger finger on the challenge flag. Warmed up with that bad boy, ready to throw it through it with with grace, with poise. I, I liked his approach to that. But this is the most hotly contested subject from this game. I, I'm going to try to explain to you why there is a definitively correct side to this debate. So with 2.20 left on the clock in the fourth quarter, Mike Frable had a decision to make. Go for it on fourth and sixth from the New Orleans 11-yard line, attempting to score a touchdown and go up three points. Or kick the field goal, cut the lead to one, 15 to 16 would be the score, which is what they ultimately did, and hope your defense can get you the ball back in time to march down and kick a game-winning field goal. He chose to rely on his defense, and I think he was very, very wrong to do so. Now, let's get the basic logic of what he was thinking out of the way, because on the surface, you kind of understand it, right? If you don't think about it for more than a moment, it makes some sense. This Titans team, which strangely, this is one of the things today that was maybe one of the bigger takeaways year to year comparison. The past couple of seasons in a row, the Titans have been phenomenal in their red zone efficiency getting into the red zone and turning that into seven points and not three today. They were O of two O of three, at least O of two off the top of my head. They they could not score touchdowns when they got into the red area, which was strange and out of character for them. And because of that, Mike Vrabel saw fourth and sixth on the 11 yard line need, need to score here, either a touchdown or a field goal. It takes two very different approaches. Got to pick my path. He, he kind of thought this team, you know, that we've, this will be our fifth field goal of the day. We've done a pretty decent job of getting our now reliable kicker into field goal range to kick field goals. We've not done an awesome job of getting into the end zone. In fact, we've been unable to do that all day long. So I'm going to opt to try to get into field goal range instead of trying to score a touchdown. That's the basic logic. It's very flawed logic. And here's why. Ultimately, the, the defense didn't get off the field and, and they lost the game. So he was obviously wrong in that respect, not to just say like he's wrong because in retrospect, he was wrong, like that you could be wrong either way. The point here is that the process was wrong. It's bad process. His decision to forego that fourth down conversion attempt was as poor logically as it was analytically. Many folks who are stuck in the mud in the dark ages will, will scoff at what I'm about to tell you analytically you're supposed to do in this situation, but I implore, if that is you, I implore you to at least consider the sheer magnitude of this number, okay? There are a handful of win percentage models out there, but I'll, I'll reference for today's purposes, one of the best out there, ESPN's model, one of the best in the business. They've got a fantastic data set, an analytics model on win percentage that has decades and decades of football history plugged into it for reference and then probabilities um, calculations on probability that that allow them to make these make these advanced decisions quickly on what you should and shouldn't do and what the numbers tell you your odds are basically a, an advanced football historically based odds maker. So this analytic model for win percentage showed 
that the decision by Mike Vrabel to kick the field goal here yielded a 10% drop-off in their win percentage, a 10% decrease in win percentage between going for it and not going for it, kicking the field goal and trying to get the ball back. That went, uh, I believe, going for it would have given them about a 33% chance to win the game. Kicking the field goal dropped their chances down to 23% and some change. Now, no analytics model is without its flaws, and a lot goes into these decisions. And I think it's fair to say that there are simply some variables that a computer cannot account for. But for reference, the trickier decisions that these models, typically this model in particular that I've been following for a long time, the, the tricky decisions this model judges are typically in the 0 to 5% range. You know, just like it's kind of a coin flip. You know, either decision you make, it's not really going to impact your chances. 5% chance change. You know, you made a bad decision, but not a backbreaking decision. That's what almost all of these trickier decisions it's supposed to judge are. All other decisions, it doesn't really publicly judge on, on social media because th the decision is typically obvious. The coach almost always goes with the correct decision. This was one of those instances where a coach made a really wildly bad decision and it had to kind of be like, what are you doing? Whoa, this was a really poor decision. Mike Vrabel made that really poor decision. This was, I mean, for, for a choice to have a whopping 10% win percentage delta. It's reasonable, I think, even if you're skeptical of analytics, it's reasonable to assume that the correct decision according to the computer in this instance is objectively the correct decision. This simply was an analytically unforgivable error. But perhaps you are somebody who, who scoffs at the notion of analytics telling a football coach what they should do. Fine. Okay, that's whatever. We'll reason this out ourselves. Let's Let's look at it logically. Let's talk it out. It makes no sense trusting the guy who threw three interceptions with the game in this situation. That's what I saw a lot of on social media. Why would you trust Ryan Tannehill right here? Threw three picks today. Why? What? What's the? It makes no sense to trust him with the game right here. My response to, to that is simply, your options were trusting him then, or maybe getting the chance to trust him in a couple of minutes. Not trusting him at all was not on the menu. Like that wasn't an option. So I don't understand that line of reasoning. Another popular thing I've seen is that they should, you know, just hey, let the defense bail the offense out again. They've been doing it all game. Like, let's just let the defense. And I get that. Like, you're, you're, you've grown accustomed in the past year and change, 18 months actually, of Titans football to the, the defense being able to carry the water for the, for the offense, to carry the offense on its back in, in, in dire situations. However, when you actually go back and look in this game, JT, the Titans defense hadn't forced a three and out once in the second half to that point, they hadn't allowed a drive of less than 26 yards in the half on 11 total saints drives in that game. New Orleans only went three and out twice, both instances early on in the game. But the strongest counterpoint is this. And I want your opinions on this decision. After I lay this out F folks that are arguing, Mike Vrabel made the right decision because of the Titans offensive woes, which I think is the most popular thing out there. It's just like the offense has been bad. So let's, let's lean on the defense. They're conveniently ignoring the fact that in the best case scenario that you ultimately didn't even get a chance to, to you see, bear, try to bear the fruit of, they were going to need to rely on that very same defense or offense rather to march down the field 40 to 50 yards into field goal range with roughly a hundred seconds of game clock to play with. Did you have more faith in the defense getting the perfect stop and the offense doing all of that?
when when the alternative was converting a simple fourth and sixth and be, being first and goal. Like, I, I I think that's insanity, JT. What, what did you think of the decision in the moment? And has maybe your opinion changed since the, the, that moment? Because I've heard some people be like, I thought they did the right thing. And then I looked at it and I, I just, I think he made the poor decision. I mean, the way the game was going, like, <clears throat> I, I, I think going for it made sense not to say that the fourth and six was simple you, you still would have had to but but then again you would have it's had a low to. probability situation for sure it, it like, is. i'm not saying it's like well all you had to do yeah i get i get what you're saying you, you but then you kick off the ball and you're basically an even lower probability same, situation is and, my point right. yeah you kick the field goal and then you kick off the ball and they're in basically the same territory where your defense has to stop them um however this team all day long was making it into field goal range, regardless uh, of the situation sure. the defense was throwing at them. So finally getting the touchdown on the board for the Titans probably would have been the correct decision. In my, in my opinion, I thought that when they were down oh, in the mean, red zone, the saints were getting into field goal range. Consistently. Yes. Yeah, no, I, yes. I, I get what you're uh, so, yeah. so I, I don't think, that making the field goal and getting that stop was really going to happen because of just towards the end of the game in the second half, how just electric and, and um, uh, just kind of how good Chris Olave and Mike Thomas were playing, right. just kind of dicing Rashid up that Shahid secondary well. yeah. Rashid Shahid as well on that, on that last kind of drive to seal the game. Like those guys were getting big chunk plays. And so if you were going to play, that game and try to hold out it's better to try to take as many points as possible no i agree i mean we saw that pretty much all game that that classic titans defensive approach of ben don't break between the 20s we're gonna let you move the ball but in the red zone we're gonna try to be stiff stiffen it up a little bit make, make it make it difficult for you guys to get seven force you to have three they did that almost all day long here's one final way of thinking about it that i kind of parsed out if you make the field goal which they did you have to get a stop and you have to score another field goal after you go. It has to be, uh, uh, you score another field goal on a forty-plus yard drive. That that's what's required if you make the field goal. If you go for it but fail to convert, you must stop the Saints' offense and then score a touchdown on a forty-plus yard drive. If you go for it and manage to convert, however, you needed to score a touchdown, and then at the very least keep the Saints' offense from going the length of the field and scoring another touchdown. So converting and scoring was the only scenario that resulted in you truly being in control and the requirement for kicking the field goal for going on it on fourth down. It, it, they were kind of, oh, excuse me, or going. So let, let me make that more clear. The requirements for kicking the field goal or going forward on fourth and failing were very similar tasks. Either way, whether you went for it and failed or you kicked the field goal, you needed a, about a 40 plus yard drive from the offense. The only situation there that that gives you the the option the the possibility rather of taking that driver's seat, you know, taking the lead and taking over the game is going for it. You at least have an opportunity there to get those seven points. Whereas with kicking the ball, you don't. And so, like the the downside of kicking was a forty plus yard drive required of you. The downside of going for it and failing was also a forty plus yard drive required of you. Either way. I just, I, I analytically, logically, it was incredibly foolish. I think that simply put, Mike Vrabel played to lose. And when you play to, you play scared, that's playing to lose. He played scared kind of all day. In that moment in particular, he played scared. And so he lost. That's how it works. 
Moving on to another winner is a whole position group who made a huge impact on today's game, and that has to go to the defensive line. Yeah, I'm going to be a broken record on this all season long. You just know it because the defensive line for the Titans is a, is really fantastic. Perhaps the only thing you could say about this team that is reliably, you know, obviously going to be really, really good each week is this defensive line. They wasted no time in creating havoc in the Superdome. The group came away with four sacks and eight quarterback hits, and it was the usual suspects pulling their weight. The perpetually underrated Danico Autry managed one and a half sacks, a tackle for a loss, four QB hits, and five tackles. And then Jeffrey Simmons on the inside got himself one sack, two TFLs, a QB hit, and five total sacks as well. Newcomer Arden Key, however, stole the show. And I tweeted out, ask me how surprised I am that Arden Key was the first to tally a sack for the Titans this season. He was fantastic in stealing the show. If you paid attention to his training camp, you were not surprised by this. It's, it became a running bit at one point after practices to get a total sacks report from Arden after each practice. And so by, by the end of the day, he, he'd managed one and a half sacks, one tackle for a loss, one pass defended, two QB hits, and four total tackles. The one nitpick with this group that I have, JT, and I don't know if you, you noticed this as well, th they started off really strong. They did not take any time to get into the flow of things. In the first half, they, they were laying waste to the Saints offense with regularity. But then you come into the second half, and the Saints seemed to find their level in keeping Derek Carr clean for the most part. And as the pass rush grew quiet, the passing game for the Saints heated up, and that Titan secondary started to get torched. I mean, they, they needed to be stronger in the second half than they were um, I think that their their first half was great. They needed to continue that to the second. Yeah, I would agree. Um, everything you said, I think Derek Carr was definitely in his debut, a little bit shaken in that first half. A lot of things did not go right for them. Definitely having to make plays on the fly, which resulted in them having to punt the ball away and turn it over. Um, but then once you saw in that second half, like, on the first or second drive when, when he started really having that connection with Michael Thomas and Michael Thomas just kind of coming back into his own. When Chris Olave finally started getting into the game, that's when you saw Derek Carr have a lot more time to get through all of his progressions and find those guys. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, let's move on now to a loser, um, a loser and a winner in the secondary today. The loser has to be Christian Fulton for today. Yeah, Christian Fulton, uh, you know, on, on the show last week on the, the take purge. I jokingly talked about the situation where, you know, it's possible that after all of this progress and the reporting on Christian Fulton throughout camp, his contract year, he's positive progress being made. It's awesome. He looks great. He's a stud. And then you, you his contract season would ultimately just still be the same frustrating, underwhelming impact style of play that we've seen from him. Or style of it's not even style of play. It's just like style of existence, the way that he's not been as impactful for this team because he's not on the field because with Christian Fulton, it really is that simple. And I'm not trying to say that is certain to become the case. Again, this is not a conclusion I'm drawing from week one. I'm not saying at all. That's what Christian Fulton's year is going to be. I am saying that he's not off to a great start. I'm afraid he's not off to a great start, JT. Uh, I, it's pretty cut and dry with him. Like if, if he's on the field, he's and healthy. He's their best cornerback. He's Tennessee's best cornerback. There's not really any arguing that. He just cannot stay healthy. And in particular, he can't stop suffering these soft tissue injuries. It was just a few minutes into the second quarter today when he was tended to by training staff on the field, helped off and deemed questionable to return. The hamstring injury is just one of a couple of those soft tissue injuries that he's had pile up over his career now. 
The silver lining, I guess, is that he ultimately did return. That's the silver lining here, though it wasn't really a triumphant return on what appeared to be his first playback. I'm not positive this was the first playback, but I'm pretty sure like the reports from the press box was that they think it was his first playback. If it wasn't his first play, it was one of his first plays back. At the end of the game, he's back in the lineup at that outside uh, right cornerback position, and he gets just torched by Rashid Shahid up the sideline. He said after the game that it wasn't a like he wasn't hampered. He wasn't slow because of the hamstring. He just clamped down on the the sticks at the boundary and and he got burned by Rashid up the sideline who made a really nice catch and was able to keep his feet in bounds. So, you know, getting cooked on that critical first down conversion at the sideline ultimately is is what allows them to ice the game. Not great. Not a great day for him overall. Bad day for his hamstrings, bad day ultimately for his level of play, not, I mean, fine from him play wise when he was out there, but he was out there much. And when he was, it, it wasn't up to his very high standards, I would say. So, it, you know, it remains to be seen just how big a deal his hamstring injury will be going forward, but um, they could, they sure could use him being healthy. And for his sake, he sure could use staying healthy. I just don't, I don't know if that's going to be the case this year. Moving on to the winner in the secondary who made his presence known almost basically immediately Pretty much immediately. the game, yeah. uh, Amani Hooker. Yeah, man. It, it's odd to begin a winner with a bad news, but I, I feel like I have to here the, to, to parse the, the good things I'm about to say about Amani Hooker. And this is not his fault, but it's just the, the reality of the situation. He is in concussion protocol after taking a particularly hard hit in the second half. You probably noticed him not being out there much at the end of the game, or not out there at all, rather, because he was in concussion protocol. I think it was the late third quarter when he got hit, but I, I can't remember to be sure. Either way, you could really easily argue that his presence was being missed once he left the game because before getting hurt, dude was making plays left and right. On the opening kickoff, he opened the season with a statement by making the solo tackle, punching the ball out of the returner's hand in the process, and then securing the ball before tumbling out of bounds. His heroics really... like. From the opening possession, it, it stole that opening possession for the Titans from the Saints, gave the Titans fantastic field position, which they ultimately squandered, but really set them up for success there. Uh, they get their their lead at 3-0 with that first field goal attempt of 50 yards from Nick Folk um, from inside fan, uh, fantasy enemy territory. Freudian slip. My fantasy team was horrible today, and I can't quit thinking about it. Um, so, you know, then on the final lengthy drive after halftime, or before halftime, um, Titans defense on the field, Saints driving. Really, this was the first drive of the game where they kind of effortlessly moved against the Titans. And you're like, I think they're going all the way to the end zone. Like this, this they're they're humming here. He stops them all of their progress, all of their momentum, dead in its tracks. Intercepts Derek Carr on the Titans' 12 yard line. The Saints have been driving the length of the field. Hooker's ability to spy on that coverage and jump the pass saved the Titans from losing the lead heading into the break. So that was a big play as well. Two massive takeaways from him today wasn't enough to win the game ultimately, but he is a phenomenal talent when he's out there. It's a big deal. He's, he's one of the X factors for the Titans defense. They desperately need him to stay healthy, desperately need him to stay healthy, not just because of what he brings when he's healthy, but because as we've talked about the depth behind him, it's Kevin Byard. It's Elijah Molden in that third slot. It's Amani Hooker. And then it's, we don't, don't want to talk about it. So um, if he can stay healthy, that's great. If the severity of his concussion dictates him being out for a, a long time, you, you you would think he's with the way the concussion protocol has been working recently. You'd think that he's going to miss at least one game now because they're very cautious about that thing. and don't want guys rushing back. 
if he has to miss more than one game, that could prove really costly for the Titans. Yeah, and speaking of how costly it was for the Titans, our next loser is the secondary group as a whole. Yeah, and this is one that I, I I included partially because I saw some people talking about how the you know the secondary was great today or the defense was great today. I, I would pump the brakes there, bro. Like the, the Titans secondary was among the the easiest to pass against in the entire league ultimately in 2022. And, and although they made a bunch of personnel improvements over the offseason, they weren't able to reap the benefits in the Superdome today. In total, Tennessee's defense allowed five plays of 20-plus yards, all of which were through the air. That doesn't include, by the way, the 19-yard touchdown pass from Derek Carr. The only other time, or the only time period, rather, that the, 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 a team in this game found the end zone too often in this game. You are seeing DBs seemingly lost or easily shaken on their routes, and the communication just seemed poor. You, you, especially in that first half, there were a number of times where you saw Guy, veterans like Kevin Byard seemingly making up for some of the the errors of the younger guys around them or the more green guys around them filling filling gaps in the zone that weren't necessarily their responsibility, kind of leaking over into an area to try to help protect the field and, and defend every blade of grass. But, you know, of the Saints, 351 total yards in this game, 305 of them were passing. So, you know, Derek Carr, 23 of 33 9.2 yards per completion clip, pretty really good game, I'd say. A, a big passing game like that is much easier in my mind to excuse against a great passer, but I don't know who is calling Derek Carr a great passer. He's he's the definition of good in this league, especially not when he's on a brand new team with a brand new coordinator and a brand new offense in his first game. Like Tennessee secondary has some serious cleaning up to do. I, I thought that today's game was some more of the same in, in terms of what we saw last year. And despite, I think, getting better truly with the people they have on the field and at their disposal, they didn't really show it today. They have some more gelling to do. Yeah, and then another winner on the offensive side of the ball who will probably be a household name on this winners and losers uh, list, Derek Henry. Yeah, I put out a halftime winners and losers list, and a lot of people were in the comments like, "You forgot Derrick Henry," and I'm like, "It's a it's a weekly assumption. Let's just let's just assume he's he's penciled in the winner column, unless I say otherwise." But yeah, I mean, you could argue that Derrick Henry was the only offensive player wearing blue on Sunday who had a really good game, rushing 15 times for 63 yards and a respectable 4.2 yards per carry. Henry seemed ahead of his typically sluggish September schedule the, the start that he typically has on the ground at least um i was impressed by that as a receiving threat he was even better two receptions on three targets for 56 yards a blistering 28 yards per reception while you know he, he clearly was the elite variable on the offense for the titans in this game it it begs the question a reasonable question to wonder why he only touched the ball 17 times in this game jt like, after all, this is the bell cow we've grown accustomed to seeing get 20 to 30 touches each game. Whenever he has a sub 20 touch game, it's usually in a blowout one way or another with this team. But this was not one of those instances. So why? In this regard, I think you could actually spin Henry as a loser in today's show. Like new Titans coordinator, Tim Kelly, his offense raised plenty of questions this offseason about how different it might be, how, you know, particularly if it would still feature Henry as its prized jewel, would it still revolve around Henry? 
the, the draft selection of Tajay Spears further complicated that situation, causing some to question if Henry would be given less of a back-breakingly demanding role in the new Titans offense, what we've grown accustomed to seeing him do for this team. Now, you know, perhaps the lack of Henry focus today was an effort to save his legs as much as possible early in the season. That That's a possibility with this team. Maybe that's part of the reason Tajay Spears is around to like give Henry a reprieve and save him for the end of the year when the games really, really matter. Um, or maybe Tim Kelly just, some people brought this up and I think it's fair. Maybe Tim Kelly just got a little bit, he heard those cries for creativity and took him to heart a little bit too much, right? He, he overdid it, accidentally neglected the old school Henry game. Do you think that has anything to do with it? Like, did you think, because I heard a lot of people say today, oh, it's a lot of the same with the Titans today. I don't know, man. Like you saw the defense was great. The the kicking game was really good. That's new. The the pass, like the receivers had a pretty good game, I'd say. That's new. They were out there. That's new. Your quarterback just needs to not throw three interceptions, I'd say, is a good starting point. And then like you, you, you've got Tajay Spears in there and, and you've got a, 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 a team offensively that maybe got a little bit too cute by half at times, but that's, that's a good thing. You want to over adjust. Like you've been begging them to be creative, right? I felt like you saw that today. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. Whether, and, and I think a lot of people's perception probably would have changed if once again, Ryan Tannehill just doesn't absolutely sling the ball over Jacob Conkle and Tajay Spears heads. Um, but you could kind of tell that like once Derrick Henry broke, like broke off that massive run, that's when the attention turns to Derrick Henry. And that's when you have to have that influx of creativity because you know how much is going to be centered around him. And so there should be a point where Tim Kelly probably overdid it. I, I would agree with that sentiment a little bit to where like at the end of the game, there like, in that in that last drive, like you you should be using Derrick Henry because of the explosive playmaking ability that he that he has. No, I agree. Whatever the case was, I what Kelly said earlier in the summer to us and in, in the in the press corps really stuck with me watching this game. He he said he'd be in, and I, I Teron Davenport's the one that asked this question. He brought it up on Twitter, and it's what made me think of this the whole game watching it from that point forward. He said he'd be foolish to get away from what the Titans do best when asked if he planned on still revolving the offense around Derrick Henry. And really, at no point today in New Orleans did his actions reflect that. So something to monitor going forward. Yeah, and then finally, our last loser of the game, and probably the biggest one that most people had complaints about, is the uh, officiating and the referees today. Yeah, the eyesight of the referees is what I wrote down for the losers I'm rarely a blame the refs guy. Like nobody likes blame the refs guy. And that isn't the case today. Like the Titans have themselves to blame for this loss for sure. However, the officiating was a massive problem in this game. Like that, that two things can be true. The Titans have themselves to blame. The officiating is also, it bears some of the blame in this game. Like it, there's really no way around it. Head coach Ron Torbert and his crew were really aggressively bad today, dreadfully bad. They made several bad calls throughout the game, and on the whole, I think those calls certainly hurt the Titans the most. I don't think there's really any way to argue that. Ryan Tannehill's second interception came on a deep shot to wide receiver Chris Moore, who who had been held and interfered with on the play, both holding and pass interference, both 
infractions, no flag called um, on the Saints' first drive of the play. People kind of forgot this, I think, but the, their their biggest pass and catch on that drive seemed clean, but then upon inspection of the replay, the receiver's second foot was clearly on the sideline and out of bounds. Like it was, it was on the white. It was like it was should not have stood. Mike Vrabel ran down there and considered throwing the challenge flag. He did not. I I thought he was wrong not to do so. I thought that he should have thrown that flag. And so um, another bad call. That's that's not to say that every one of these more minor calls went against Tennessee. Like there was a makeup call or two in there. That that lack of interference that was was not called on Elijah Molden on that really really deep shot from uh, Derek Carr in the second half. That was one of those calls where you're like, that's, you know, good for consistency, at least not calling that there and not calling it on on the Chris Moore deep shot. OK, fine, whatever. You're going to let the guys play downfield. But there was one play that everybody knows what we're about to talk about. There was one play that arguably swung the very outcome of the game. Like there, it's really not hyperbole to say that it, this, of course, was the Derek Carr incomplete pass fumble. And we've got a clip, JT, comparing this pass or lack thereof, this fumble um, from Derek Carr to what we saw at the end of last season from the Titans in Josh Dobbs. They're the same thing. One of these plays was deemed an incomplete pass, and one of them was deemed a fumble. I'll let you guess which one. It, they're both it, they're both hurting the Titans. And so the, the first insane thing that the referees did here was that they this inexplicable decision by them to blow the play dead upon the defensive return. Kevin Byard scoops up the fumbled ball, has a clear lane to the end zone where he runs and he lays the ball down long after the premature whistle. Referees in the NFL are explicitly, specifically instructed to let these instances play out. Like that's ref 101 and why the refs chose to ignore that lesson from ref 101 is beyond me. I don't know why, but they did it and it took an almost certain touchdown away from the Titans. There's really no two ways about it. They got, they got jobbed here. They got jobbed. Um, and so that was the first crazy thing to blow that whistle, but then they doubled down like the decision to, to call the play dead on the return was absurd. But then the decision to double down on their wrongness was even more ridiculous. They then come back and say, not only were we right to blow the play dead, but it was an incomplete pass, guys. It was an incomplete pass. Like, it, it wasn't a fumble. So not even Titans ball. Saints, uh, I think that was a third down. So fourth down, you can kick your field goal. You can tie up the game, I believe. It, that may, makes it 6-6. Six, six. Um, but yeah, like, that was crazy because it was a by-the-book clear example of a fumble. The call was completely inconsistent with what we saw at the end of the season last year for the Titans in this Josh Dobbs uh, pass attempt fumble that, that that lost them the game in week 18 to the Jaguars. And it was also inconsistent with what we saw just a couple minutes later elsewhere in the AFC South in Indianapolis with the Jaguars head, uh, not head coach, quarterback Trevor Lawrence. He fumbles the ball in this same exact way. It's actually picked up initially by one of his receivers, one of the Jacksonville receivers who just stands there. And then the veteran savvy move by uh, defensive lineman DeForest Buckner having the presence of mind to punch the ball out, grab it, run it all the way down the field for a scoop and score that ended up standing, ended up being a touchdown. Exactly what should have happened in the Titans game for the Titans on this play. Like it, it, it's, it's absurd that they did this. It, it can't be explained. It cannot be explained how the officials managed to get this play wrong. 
when given the chance to review it. It's unacceptable. It's something that the Titans fans should take a vocal issue with, in my opinion. Did it solely cost them the game? No way. Absolutely not. But is is it a massive error, like massive error, that potentially changed the outcome of the game? Yes, I think it clearly is. And so those are our winners and losers today. And in, in summary, I want to just mention one more thing before we go. I did this on Twitter, and I think it's uh, the best way of recapping this game. Like, how did the Titans lose? Here's how. Okay, eight massive mistakes. The eight biggest mistakes in this game that led to the Titans losing that I have ranked. Number one, a lot of people argue with me on this, but like, I think it's objectively, definitively true. The number one biggest f- mistake that they made that directly impacted them winning or losing Was Mike Rabel kicking that field goal down four instead of going for it on fourth and sixth on the 11th yard line? On the 11-yard line, that is. Simply can't make that decision. Analytically unforgivable. Logically unsound. There's no two ways about it, in my opinion. Number two, Ryan Tannehill underthrow of DeAndre Hopkins for his third interception, which was dreadfully underthrown. Number three is Ryan Tannehill's underthrow of DeAndre Hopkins for his first interception, which was less dreadfully underthrown, but underthrown nonetheless. Number four are the refs blowing that car fumble dead and stealing a touchdown from the Titans, then doubling down and calling it an incomplete pass. Crazy. That's number four. Number five is uh, the, the Tannehill overthrow of Oconquo on the trick play, which was a walk-in touchdown turned incompletion. Number six, Ryan Tannehill's poor pass to Ty J Spears streaking up the sideline would be touchdown turned incompletion. Another instance where seven points squandered. Number five is that that deep pass, under underthrown deep pass to Chris Moore. I didn't have a huge issue with them taking that shot, JT, on that first drive after the half. It My only real quibble with it is, is Chris Moore the guy you want to try to stretch the field there? Like, is he the one you're wanting to do that? I don't know about that. Like, I'm not sure he's the guy that I'm, I'm going to try to create, you know, make him into a vertical threat there. But otherwise, that was the, 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 eight, the seventh mistake. And then the eighth mistake uh, Titans coaching staff putting Christian Fulton back in on that last series who got promptly cooked to a crisp by Shahid on that sideline third down, which essentially iced the game. So there it is. Your winners and losers Titans lost 15 to 16 to the saints. They host the chargers in their home opener this upcoming Sunday. The chargers also coming off of a loss. Never love that when you got a, a team that's pissed off and you know, they are in last place as are the Titans tied for last in their division. Um, good and bad news. Bad news is the Titans are facing down going going to if they do not win this game, which is scary. The good news is the Titans. I need to remind. I'm probably going to remind them that people of this for the next two weeks. The Titans started going two last year, and then by mid November, they were seven and three. So going two, not a death sentence. Doesn't mean it's something you want, but it's not a death sentence. So just relax. Okay. I saw it, it to maybe the perfect wrap up for today's show. JT, I saw on Twitter right before we recorded, I screenshotted it and tweeted it because it's just it is peak fandom. It is perfect. It is it is it is it is it is pure, unadulterated fan like fanatic behavior. It is it is USTA 100 percent certified beef fandom. It's the way the good Lord intended it. Um, A comment on a Sal from Jersey post, because, of course, that's where this is going, right? A comment was, we, wait, 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 this person says, you were you were just all in on this team all summer long, and now you want to fold after week one. And Sal's answer, yes. That's all you need to know. That's how it works. That's how fans work. That's week one. We're going to talk, I think, on Wednesday about a lot of uh, overreaction, 
week one overreaction topics from the Titans game from the rest of the league. It's my favorite thing to dive into this time of year and try to we'll bring back the we'll bring back the heat index. Yeah, the heat index. That's that's, that's really what I'm I'm hoping we can do. It's been a minute. It's time to bring it back. We'll talk through some of the craziest takes from week one, and there are plenty of them. Um, We'll be back on Wednesday, first thing in the morning, the podcast and the YouTube show. We'll be doing that show live, as always, on Tuesday afternoon. So tune in with us on Tuesday afternoon to be a part of the conversation. Um, Sorry sorry you guys couldn't be a part of the live show today. We recorded it, obviously, putting it up live on Monday. We'll be back live Tuesday for any questions or comments you might have about the Titans. We'd love to talk to you about it then. Until then, for producer JT, I'm your host, Easton Freeze. This has been the Hot Read Podcast. We'll talk to you on Tuesday.